Now let's pray and then Zachy's going to come and read the scripture. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that every word passes through your hands. And I pray that Holy Spirit you give us ears to hear, eyes to see and hearts to understand what you would say to us through God's word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today I'll be reading from Exodus 7, verses 1 to 13. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so, so they did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old. When they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Thank you. We looked on a Thursday night at um, Ephesians and I asked the question at the outset, I wonder what you'd say is the greatest threat facing the church today. When, you, when we hear of Sharia law basically being declared and lived out in parts of Yorkshire, for example, and, uh, or the redefinition of sexuality and marriage, the threat to religious liberty, the threat of philosophical pluralism. What is the biggest threat to the welfare and the health of the Church of Jesus Christ in these days? Well, what I am convicted of is that the biggest threat, however serious these other threats may be, the biggest threat is an inadequate, anemic, impoverished knowledge of God in the Church today. There are people who claim to be Christians, who play who play fast and loose with God's words and are not interested in knowing who is the Lord. And to the degree that God is merely a background assumption, well, we're a church, so we kind of need to be about God. It's in our articles of faith and nothing more. To the degree that God is taken for granted, while we get on with more appealing, more winsome 
concerns to that degree, the church will lose its power and the message will lose its effectiveness. So the need of the hour is for churches that are captured by and throbbing white hot with the awareness of the presence of God. The God of infinite majesty and glory and grace. For Christians who have bowed under the weight of glory. For believers whose hearts have been captivated with the grandeur of his sovereignty and melted by the beauty of his love. So the church's greatest need is that as our culture has drifted, or not only drifted, but galloped into moral and spiritual chaos, perhaps the church is instead focused on technique, on cultural engagement, on style, on honing its message, on reaching out and assimilating new members. But the most basic and fundamental thing without which the church cannot serve or function at all, the air that we breathe, our communion with God, our intimate acquaintance with the God of the Bible has been assumed and taken for granted and now neglected and overlooked. What's the point of getting people in if they're not going to hear the message of the God of the Bible? Then we become a club and we're not very good at being a club as well. But it's deemed more important that we're accepted by the world rather than falling on our faces before the God of the universe who we claim to worship. That's, I think, is the biggest need of the church. Is, is an intimate acquaintance with God. Who is the Lord? In 2015, the year that we moved from Austria, well, Wheaton College was in the news, and it was, it was pertinent to me because when I was the director of ICSV, the Christian school, I went to Wheaton College more than once to present there, and I, I got to know some of the professors, and uh, the president is a great gospel man, uh, Phil Reichen, he has the Billy Graham Centre, Yutter and I visited the Wade Centre. We saw the wardrobe, the actual wardrobe that C.S. Lewis based the lion, the witch and the wardrobe on. And uh, so it, it's a solid Bible college. And, but in 2015, just as we came back, there was a tenured political science professor in Wheaton College in order to show solidarity with Islam, took to wake in a, wearing a hijab in public. The, you know, the Muslim scarf that Muslim women wear. And she explained that she did so not only to show solidarity with Islam, but because Christians and Muslims worship the same God. You know, that, you know, that's what she said, which is controversial. She ended up being put on leave, making clear, Wheaton College made it clear that it wasn't her act of solidarity that was at stake, but for her theological statements about Christianity and Islam. But Muslims and Christians do share important religious commonalities. And I think that's important as we come to who is the Lord. Abraham is important to both Islam and Christianity. Both religions are moni monotheistic. Both recognise Jesus, at least as a miraculous prophet. Both believe in the abiding significance of a holy book. But that does not mean that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. Because the differences between Christianity and Islam are wide. We disagree about the Bible. We disagree about Muhammad. We disagree about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
what happened on the cross, what happens when you die, how you get to heaven. To name just but a few. Christians worship the triune God. One God in three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And in our understanding, in Christian understanding, God is only known and worshipped when he's worshipped as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian God is the invisible God who has been made visible in the face of Jesus Christ on this side of the Incarnation. Therefore, all other conceptions of God are not merely incomplete, but idolatrous. There's a Yale professor called Miroslav Volf. If you've been around theology, you may have heard of Miroslav Volf. And he argues that though Christians and Muslims talk about God in different ways, we're really worshipping the same being. He's a professing Christian. He argues that though Muslims and Christians have different ways of explaining and understanding God, the referent, the object, is the one true God, which in his mind I take it to be Father, Son and Holy Spirit. I would argue that this is not only wrong of our understanding of the worship of God, but it denigrates the Muslim faith it purports to embrace. No doubt people who are very ecumenical would find it fascinating and encouraging, but the Muslims wouldn't. Because they would say with incredulity. So you as a Christian are saying to me that we worship in the same God, but I just don't know it? It's offensive. Muslims would say, don't put on me that I'm suddenly worshipping your God without realising. When the Bible deals with the question of other religions, it has different categories. Sometimes the Bible talks about other religions and other gods as nothing, just statues and stones. Sometimes it talks about idolatrous categories, which is quite common. Worshipping the wrong God or trying to worship the right God in the wrong way. Sometimes it's under the category of the demonic, that standing behind idolatry worship is the false spirits and demons. But the one category you never find in Holy Scripture is that other religions worship the same being. It's nowhere to be found in Scripture. Nowhere to be found in Scripture. And I don't introduce that to spend any more time on that important topic, but it is important. But to set the stage for these verses which Zachary read and the next chapters in the book of Exodus. Because what we have is the conflict between Yahweh the one true God and the false God of the Egyptians. That's what's happening. It's the conflict between Jehovah and the false gods of the Egyptians. So the central question in the book of Exodus, which Moses has asked and Pharaoh has asked is, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? The book is called Exodus because they exit they flee Egyptian oppression. You could easily call the book Exhibit, because the book exhibits the greatness of God. Or you could call it Explain or Express, because the book is about that great act of redemption from slavery. But overarching the act of salvation is God's desire to make himself known. That is the one thing we all need to know the living God. And the book of Exodus is about the God who makes himself known. 
The incarnation is about God who makes himself known, but not with great plagues raining down upon his enemies, but in the humble, quiet birth in a manger in the out-of-way little town of Bethlehem. But we see again and again in the chapters ahead in Exodus, Lord willing, that as these plagues fall on Egypt, that the Lord God wants to make himself known. Verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Why ten plagues? Why ten times? For this reason alone, that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So who is the true God who alone is worthy of our worship? And the point of the passage this morning is that Yahweh is God and Pharaoh is not. And we see this in three different ways. Number one, you probably read it as, as, as you heard it, as Zachary said, read Moses is God to Pharaoh. We have this strange verse, chapter verse one, and the Lord said to Moses, see I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. Now if, Pharaoh, if Moses is like God to Pharaoh, then Pharaoh himself must not be God. Okay, that's logical. But what is strange is that there is no actual word like in the Hebrew. We put it in, rightly so, in, in my, we, we insert it in the English translation so we don't misunderstand what it's saying. But literally it says in the original, the Lord said to Moses, I have made you God to Pharaoh. Not in the sense that Moses has become divine, but Moses in, in, in his relationship to Pharaoh is a kind of deity. He has a prophet, for example. Your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. And all that Moses says will come true. And he will exert authority over Pharaoh and over Egypt. So because the authority that God gives to Moses is total, complete and mind-blowing, we can rightly say that Moses is God to Pharaoh. And to understand why God would say something like this, we have to remember that Pharaoh considered himself to be, and the people considered him to be, a god. That was the understanding of the Pharaohs. Now, in a bit of history lesson, I'm going to ask you, who is the most famous Pharaoh of all? He wasn't the most impressive Pharaoh, but he didn't reign that long. Okay, so can somebody tell me who the most famous Pharaoh is? It's actually King Tut. You've all heard of King Tut? Um, Tutankhamun. He reigned in the 14th century. And the Exodus is in the 15th century, probably. So the next century, the Exodus after King Tut. Now, I mentioned King Tut because his full name, as you rightly said, Tutankhamun, it means the living image of Amun. It means that you know, King Tut, the living image of Amun. And Amun was a major Egyptian deity, so King Tutankhamun meant the living image of Amun. And I mentioned that to you, not because he was the pharaoh mentioned here, but that was the common understanding of every pharaoh, that they were the living representation of a god. And Amun was a major Egyptian deity who was fused with the sun god Ra, so you may have heard of Amun-Ra. And he was the chief Egyptian deity. So King Tutankhamun was the embodiment, the living image of Egyptian God. 
Now, amazingly, in our text, it isn't the king of Egypt who will be God to Pharaoh or God to Moses, because that's what Pharaoh thinks. He said, you come in here, Moses, you're some ostracised Hebrew wannabe Egyptian prince, trained up in some godforsaken place of Midian, and you come back after you killed a man, and you come back wanting to identify with the slaves, now tell me, who really is God to who? Who is God to who? You can imagine the contempt you know, of, of the world in all its greatness. You? Pharaoh thought, I am Pharaoh. I am God. And I'm certainly God to this piddling little prophet. But the Lord said, no. This elderly shepherd, vagabond, who's come to free a bunch of slaves, he shall be God to you. Now, we all need humility. Some of us will embrace it willingly, and others will have it forced upon us by God himself. One way is the easy way, the other is the hard way. The Lord opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble. If you want God to be against you, be proud. Be like Pharaoh. If you want to, God to be for you, to help you, then be humble enough to say, I cannot save myself, and only God can save me through his beloved Son. It's the core of the Gospel. He loves to give grace to the humble. Maybe you're here this morning and you had a struggle to get out of bed. Or maybe you're thinking, I cannot handle all the things that I have going on in my family. And if you feel like a failure this morning, if you feel weak, if you feel that you've come to the end of yourself, then congratulations. You're just the sort of person the Lord Jesus loves to bless. You're just the sort of person the Lord loves to bless. But if you feel secure this morning, if you feel strong, if you feel on top of the world, and you feel capable and proud, then beware. Beware you do not end up like Pharaoh. The humble like Moses are much more than they seem. The proud like Pharaoh are much less than they imagine. So a little aside, Moses is kind of old. Did you get that? Did you get that? He's 80. He's going to live to be 120. So even if you ramp that back and says, no, he's a young man, biblically, you know. In the terms of, even if you ramp it back and do some calculations, even in how long our lives are typically, he's in the last third of his life. Agree with me? He's in the last third of his life. So if you're in the last third of your life here this morning, God may just be getting started with you. Because this is what God had for Moses when he was 80. You think Moses was the typical teenager? You know, I'm 16, watch out world, here I come. I have plans, God. God says, <laughs> I've got plans for you. The big things, great. Well, that's great. I cannot wait till I graduate. Can I come back on my 20th birthday? No, I'll take you when you're 80. And your whole life is going to be in preparation for that. You get to the last third of your life. Maybe it's in retirement. Or maybe the last part of your career. Or maybe it's with your prayers or the resources that you give. 
or maybe with the encouragement. I do not know what it is, but this is God's plan for Moses as he enters the last third of his life. The most important part of his life is still to come. I love what Dwight Moody says. Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking he was somebody. Then he spent 40 years on the backside of the desert realising he was nobody. And then he spent 40 years learning what God can do with a somebody who found out he was a nobody. Isn't that great? That's pretty good. So if it takes you 80 years to find out that you're nothing, you're finally something, somebody that God can really use. So Pharaoh is not God, but Jehovah is. Hallelujah. The Lord God Almighty is God. And he makes Moses as God to Pharaoh, not the other way around. The second point is, and you've probably seen this and you'll see it again, is God hardens Pharaoh's heart. We've heard it before, we'll see it again. And there's a number of different ways that's expressed in Exodus. Most often it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and sometimes it simply says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. These are all ways of showing that Pharaoh is responsible for the sin he commits. Pharaoh is a responsible human being for the hardness of his heart. And at the same time, he's under the authority and sovereignty of God, who purposes to harden Pharaoh's heart in order to show his own glory. But the point is that Pharaoh is not calling the shots. And it means, it means that Moses is not calling the shots. Moses, I have a great assignment for you. You're going to be a world-famous preacher. Okay, sign me up. And you're going to go and preach to the most powerful man on the planet. It'll be a bit nerve-wracking, but sign me up. And he will never listen to you. Hmm. That, his, his, Moses' job was to preach. No matter the results, his job was to preach. God had a glorious purpose and it did not involve the salvation of Pharaoh. That is humbling. It's humbling for Moses. It's humbling for us. God always has good and glorious purposes. God is good all the time. He even has good and glorious purposes with those who oppose him. And as much as we pray, and we should, and as much as we evangelise, and we must, yet there are times when God's good and glorious purposes do not involve the salvation of those who harden their hearts, like Pharaoh, and those whom he has hardened. This was good testing ground for Moses, because if you know anything about the rest of his ministry, it was going to be the same. Moses embarked on, on a long ministry of people not listening to him. And as much as we move throughout Exodus, we may be preoccupied about the freedom of man. What does this say about free will? And in good time, we will get to that. But the book of Exodus is so much more concerned about the question of the freedom of God. Is God free to do as he sees fit? Is the Lord free to have mercy on whom he would have mercy? The Lord is God over Pharaoh. And there's another layer to this hardening that you may not have noticed. And you have to understand some of the Egyptian culture and religion. I really recommend a book to you, it's called um, 
Ancient, Ancient Egypt in the Old Testament by John Currid. Um, really, really good book, really worth getting. And in there he goes into some of the understanding, some of the Egyptian culture and religion. And many temples and tombs in Egypt, they had a heart weighing in the balance. And there's a famous story in the Book of the Dead, it's an Egyptian book, a nice cheery little book. And it tells of a man called Anai, who entered the throne room of judgment and found the god of death, Anubis. And Anubis called for Anai's heart to be weighed in the balance against the feather of righteousness. All religion, save for the gospel, is rife with works-based righteousness. And many Christians are obsessed with work, professing Christians are obsessed with works-based righteousness. And the idea in Egyptian mythology was Anai's heart would be weighed against the feather of righteousness. And if his heart weighed almost anything at all, it would be heavier than the feather of righteousness and Anubis would send him to destruction. And there are all sorts of sayings of fear and terror. And that was a familiar Egyptian way of describing a heart that would not pass the final judgment. So do you see what the Lord God is doing? Not, not only is he asserting his sovereign authority over Pharaoh, he's making clear in a way that the Israelites and definitely the Egyptians would understand that Pharaoh's heart will be weighed in the balances and be found wanting. It will be heavier than the feather of righteousness. God will be the one to judge Pharaoh. The Lord will be the one to sit in judgment on the king of Egypt and not the other way round. That's the point. God will judge Pharaoh. The Lord will sit in judgment on Pharaoh, not the other way round. Have you heard of C.S. Lewis's book, God in the Dock? Make a note, I've quoted C.S. Lewis, I don't do it very often. But C.S. Lewis is saying, modern women women, and I do agree with him on this, have put God in the dock. We've put God on trial. We've stood back and we've folded our puny little arms, yes, puny little arms, even if you're a weightlifter. And we've said to God, prove yourself to me. Prove yourself to me. God, why do, not you, why, why do you not show yourself to me? I do not know what kind of God. Let us get together and consider, number one, if this God exists, and then let us consider if he is worthy of our worship and our prayers and our affection and our obedience. And while we're at it, let us tell God he's got it so wrong on who we can marry and what sex we were born as. We have put God in the dock. God, you owe me. God, you must do things for me. If you were God, my life would be bliss. And everything in the Bible says exactly the opposite. And that's the lesson that Pharaoh is going to learn the hard way. That he will not sit in judgment on God. And I don't care who you are. You will never sit in judgment on God. He, will, he is not the one who will stand in judgment over Yahweh. Because Yahweh has weighed his heart and found it wanting. My friend, the glory is that God is God and Pharaoh is not. And we've, make, we've seen it as he makes Moses like God to Pharaoh. 
We've seen it as the Lord has hardened Pharaoh's heart because he is God and Pharaoh is not. And thirdly and finally, we see this meal of Pharaoh's snakes, the snake and the staff. There are ten plagues, by the way, eleven miracles. This is the first one. It's not a plague per se, because the only collateral damage is a few snakes and rods. But it's the first of eleven miracles, the first sign before the ten plagues. Some people have been so anxious to find a natural explanation. You'll find snake charmers today who know how to press the right spot on the back of a snake's head, which puts it into some kind of rigor mortis, and then you compress it again and it comes back to life again. I guess that's technically possible if someone educated beyond their intelligence says so, but that's not what is happening here. There's nothing to suggest this is some kind of animal trickery. It is explicitly positioned as a miracle from Moses and from the Egyptian magicians. They could do it by their secret arts, their dark magic. Satan's power is real. It's not absolute, it's not sovereign, but Satan's power is real. Jesus said, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. Matthew 24, verse 24, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if it were possible, even the elect. In Acts 8, you know, in Acts 8 Simon the sorcerer, he had tricks up his sleeve. We see in the Bible people perform miracles. No natural explanation. We're not only talking sleight of hand. Yes, that's largely how Egyptians would have operated. A big bouquet of flowers up their sleeve, a rabbit in their hat. Never really been attractive to me to have a rabbit in your hat, by the way. I wouldn't like that myself. Or, you know, arranging the cards. So it's not only mere illusion, it's demonic power. By their secret arts, they're able to do the same thing. So what we have in this incident isn't little, because it's what we'll see over the course of the ten plagues. And this is the main point, that Yahweh, Jehovah, triumphs over the false gods of the people of Egypt. And if you don't take away anything else but that, Jehovah is king, Pharaoh is not, and Yahweh triumphs over the false gods of Egypt. The Egyptians thought, we have really good reason to believe in our gods. Well, look at our magicians. They can do spells, they can do tricks, they can do magic, they can make snakes turn into staffs. Moses, you've got tricks, we've got tricks. And that's why it's important, that one line at the end. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Let me give you some Egyptian background again from John Curry. Um, we're going to have a coronation this year, and first for many of us. And while it won't be as explicit as time's gone by, and while you wonder who it is who's crowning the king, nevertheless, it is still a Christian coronation, or at least at some point in, in, in principle. Now, the crown in glory on Tutankhamun's crown. Has anyone, did, did anyone ever see Tutankhamun's? I think I went to the British Museum, I saw it. Science, yeah. the, and the most crowning glory is a coiled cobra. The, you know, the, the most crowning glory of the Egyptian king of Egypt's crown is a coiled cobra, a female 
coiled cobra. So the cult of Uraeus worshipped serpents. There's a lot of serpent evil, isn't there? Right back in the Garden of Eden, it was the serpent. And the symbol of Egyptian sovereignty was a coiled cobra. And according to Egyptian folklore, that coiled cobra had divine power and authority. And that coiled cobra on the crown was a symbol of Pharaoh's majesty and divinity. It was called the Uraeus crown, just that female cobra on the crown of the Pharaoh. And in recognition of his power at the coronation, the Pharaoh would turn and address the cobra. And it would say, O red crown, O Inu, O great one, O magician, O fiery snake, let there be terror of me like the terror of thee. Let there be fear of me like the fear of thee. Let there be awe of me like the awe of thee. Let me rule, a leader of the living. You see, that it sounds demonic, doesn't it? It's a dark arts, but that's the national bow that the Pharaoh would take. So you see the significance of the snake. And then look at the significance of the rod, the staff. The Egyptians had any number of myths, myths about magicians turning objects into animals. We actually had one of a wax crocodile, and they made a wax crocodile, who the priest threw in the lake, and it became a real crocodile. And then he went in and pulled it out, and it became wax again. And there were engravings and sculptures through ancient Egypt showing the staff of Pharaoh, called the Rod of God, because it was associated with Osiris, the god of the afterlife. That's why they held the staff in their hands. So the snake and the staff are symbols of the power and divinity of Egypt. So it isn't by accident that Aaron has a staff he throws down and it becomes a snake. Both are the symbols of Pharaoh's divinity. And what we see here in living colour is God's power over nature, over Pharaoh, over Egypt and over every one of Egypt's gods. It was a striking display of the power of God. This isn't really a bridge-building diplomatic exercise, is it? It's not the Windsor Agreement. If you're a DUP supporter, my apologies. But the imagery would not have been confused upon the Egyptians with this snake, the symbol of Pharaoh's power. And the rod, the staff in his hand, exerting his authority, swallowed up. And that same, way, that same word swallowed we see next in, Pharaoh, in Exodus 15, verse 12, when it says that Pharaoh and his army were swallowed up by the Red Sea. Oh, this is just a little thing. We're getting ready for bigger things to come. But the Lord is God and Pharaoh is not. And let that be recognised this morning, that God is God and we are not. We celebrate at Christmas, the Incarnation, we celebrate the Resurrection at Easter. And we celebrate at Christmas, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. God coming to earth. So Moses was to be God to Pharaoh. Jesus really is God to us. The visible image of the invisible God. Which is why, no matter how decent we may be, and no matter how sincere our hearts are, we're not all worshipping the same God. Not even people who profess to be Christian, we're not worshipping the same God.
Because in the gospel, we understand that God we worship, the almighty God we worship this morning, is the God who came to be born. He came to be born. A helpless babe to a virgin. He took on human flesh. And at the heart of the mystery of our faith, as Christians, is considered unspeakable blasphemy for us. The heart of our faith is that our God became flesh to become one of us. How can these two be the same? But it's common and normal to agree with that. And you can be here this morning and say, I am so glad, and I am so glad that God has won over Pharaoh. I hope no one came here this morning, or no one sitting here this morning thinking, what a good guy Pharaoh is. That Pharaoh guy, Pharaoh guy, he gives a bit of a bad press. He's pretty good. I like the way he walks. The whole thing is pretty great. Said no one ever. But have you ever thought about it this way? Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus is God. And you know, every time you say that, you're saying, Jesus is God, and I am not. Because you can't just say Jesus is God. Because if Jesus is Lord, you are not. It's all very well to good and proper to say Yahweh is God and not Pharaoh. Preach it, pastor. But it means Yahweh is God and you are not. I am not. And it means that we do not get to call the shots in our life. It means that we're not the ones in control. It means that we're not the ones who can say, God, I have a few suggestions. A few of us got together, and I think you could be a better God if you would do it this way. Breaking news. You are not God. You're not the Saviour. It's not about you. Now, you can take that as a great challenge and bad news. And it is tremendously bad news to the proud. But it's tremendously good news to the humble. Because you can say, Jesus is God and I am not. And I, I, I need to hear that. I need to hear that. It means I don't have to be. Because God is Emmanuel, God with us. You do not have to be God. You don't have to figure it out anymore. Self-salvation, self-deliverance and self-control of your life. Because the story of the gospel is that Jesus is God. And that is wonderful news. If we can only admit that we're sinners. We're sinners unable to save ourselves. And we need a saviour. And God in his mercy has provided one. Our Lord Jesus Christ. May we admit this morning that we need this God. Because we are not. For his glory. Amen.